Welcome to Finding Holiness, where we delve into timeless Torah wisdom, revealing the sacred in everyday moments. Join us on a journey to elevate your spirituality and discover holiness in every aspect of life. I'm your host, Rabbi David Kadosh, and together, let's embark on a path of spiritual exploration. I hope you enjoy this next episode. Good evening, Erev Tov, everybody. Welcome to a special new series that we are promoting, publishing, and sharing with all of you tonight, beginning tonight for the next few weeks. We are happy to be learning Beyahad here on our podcast, on our Wednesday night shiur, Megillat Esther. We are lucky this year in that we have a double Adar. Some may not think it's lucky, but we have more time to study the Megillah with a little bit more patience, with a little bit more focus, and I'm happy that you're joining us tonight live to study the Megillah with me and over the next few weeks. And of course, if you're not here live, that's okay, because you're probably listening to it on the podcast or findingholiness.com, Finding Holiness podcast on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you hear your podcasts. Thank you very much for tuning in to listen, and I hope you stay with us over the next few weeks. And of course, always check out our website in case you missed something. Everything there is archived for your pleasure and enjoyment and for your Torah learning experience. I want to begin, first of all, by mentioning our series sponsor um, for the next few weeks. Uh, The Megillat Esther series is sponsored Le'ilu Nishmat, Mrs. Alegria Ben Maman Zichanali Bracha, Alegria Bat Riga, by her loving grandchildren. So a big shout out and a thank you to all of you, the grandchildren who stepped up and made this very much possible. Skula Mitzvot, the words of Torah that we say this evening and for the next few weeks be Le'ilui Nishmata Tinafshat Serura Bitzror Hachaim Amen. We also have another Shior sponsor tonight specifically. Uh, thank you to Mr. Yaakov Medina, who's sponsoring this in memory of his brother, Mr. Yit, uh, Yitzhak Ben Miriam Zichnoi Rachan, as well. The words of Torah that we say this evening should be Le'ilui Nishmato. Amen. So, this is the first class of six that we are going to be engaging in the Megillah. It's, uh, we have six weeks really until Purim. Purim, I believe, is a Wednesday. So, um, we were we are going to attempt to finish the Megillah and span it over the next six weeks. So just to give you a heads up, if again if you're listening to this live or you're listening to it on a recording, how this is going to work tonight, we are going to study chapter one, the first parak. Um, next week we're going to study chapter two, and then we're going to start combining some some prakim, some chapters. We'll do three and four together, five and six together, and the fifth week we'll do seven and eight. And then 9 and 10. 10 is actually quite short, um, but that's okay. Uh, but it'll, 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 it'll culminate there with number 9 and number 10. As well, it's important to note how we are going to be studying this. Uh, I'm going to focus on the Peshat of the Pesukim of the Megillah. Of course, there are four ways to expound uh, the Torah and all of Tanakh. Pardes, Peshat, Remez, Rash, and Sod one level deeper than the other. Uh, I want our listeners to just have a better understanding based on various commentary on the simple Peshat of the, of the Pasuk and what's happening behind the scenes. There are different comment, uh, commentaries uh, that, that speak about it. A lot of us are familiar with what Rashi talks about and uh, Rashi often quotes the Gemara, which we will also uh, discuss as, as we go along. But just to keep that in mind, so if you don't hear me talk about many Midrashim, or much gematria or stuff like that. That's because we're uh, that's all fantastic and it's great. It's a deeper sense of learning. But I want our audience to just have a well-rounded understanding of what is happening in the uh, pesukim. So let's give an overview first before we actually jump right in there of Megillat Esther in general. Uh, so Megillat Esther, as we know, is read in the Bet Knesset on the holiday of Purim. It's read twice once at night and once during the day, and has become one of the most well-known books of the Tanakh. The story unfolds 
in the capital of Persia, which is known as called Shushan, during the last years of Galut Babel, the Babylonian exile, the 70 years in between the first and second Bet HaMikdash. The Babylonian exile had already um, uh, began, and that empire was conquered already by Daryavish from Mede, from Media. Daryavish, uh, uh, Darius the Mede. And he was succeeded by his son-in-law, Korish, also known as Cyrus. Uh, he was a Persian. He was from Paras. Now, Korish gave permission for the Jews to return to the land of Israel and to rebuild the Bet HaMikdash, but it was revoked due to Lashon Hara and slander of the local non-Jews, the local Gentiles that were living at the time. So Megillat Esther actually opens uh, in the reign of the successor of Koresh, named Ahasuerus, with the process of the ultimate, or that final redemption, not the, the redemption of Mashiach, but the redemption that they were going to go rebuild the Bet Hamidash is all in limbo. The Jews are very much disunited. They are scattered throughout the Persian Empire. Assimilation is rampant, as we're going to talk about later on. Um, and Achashverosh's wife, his na- her name was Vashti, the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian ruler who raised the first temple urged her husband not to undo the destruction of her grandfather and not to rebuild the Bet HaMikdash. And therefore, the actual construction of the Bet HaMikdash was not really resumed until the reign of Ahasuerus' successor, who was Daryavish the Persian, not Daryavish the Mede, the, the one we mentioned before, but Daryavish the Persian, who, according to many, was the son of Ahasuerus and Esther. Who was Ahasuerus? According to the Targum, Ahasuerus was the son of Daryavish the Mede, from Media. Um, but the more commonly cited opinion uh, based on the Talmud in uh, the Masechet Megillah, Daf Yud Aleph Amur Aleph, says that Ahasuerus was actually just a regular guy. He was a wealthy commoner and he rose to power on his, on his own. He then married Vashti to legitimize his his throne. According to many Mefarshim commentaries, this is the background to what Ahasuerus is going to demand from Vashti in the opening chapter, which we're going to read today, that Vashti be displayed before the people wearing nothing but her royal crown. Again, we'll, we'll get to there shortly in the Pesukim. Following the dramatic series of events of open mural uh, 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 that, that we're going to talk about, um, one thing that that one figure that plays a very important role in this story is a man named Haman. Now, the Jewish people experienced the most unbelievable miracles when they fled from Egypt. Of course, the ten plagues and the splitting of the sea. And there was only one nation that dared attack the Jewish people. That nation were descendants of an Ill- illegitimate grandson of Esav, whose name was Amalek. And although the um, the Amalekim lost the battle there in the times of Moshe and Yehoshua, but they did succeed with a much greater goal. They dulled the awareness of the divine providence uh, in which the Yetziat Mitzrayim really introduced to all of mankind. And ever since then, Amalek has been the arch enemy of the Jewish people, opposing all that Akadosh Baruch Hu's people represent, and therefore Bnei Israel is commanded one of our positive commandments to erase uh, Amalek from existence, from our memory, never to forget what they did to us, and again eliminate them from uh, from the world. And one of the assignments that was given to Shaul Amalek by the prophet Shmuel, Shmuel Anavi in Sefer Shmuel, was a mission to wage war against the Amalekim and eliminate them. Uh, however, although Shaul did um, uh, defeat the Amalekim in that war, he spared the life of the king, whose name was Agag. And this deviation of God's will caused the throne to be taken from him early and transferred 
to David HaMelech. And many generations later, fast forward, there's a tikkun involved over here. There's a rectification of Shaul's misdeed. Uh, Shaul's descendants, Mordechai and Esther, were given the opportunity to rectify their ancestors' negligence by leading the struggle against Agag's descendant, who was Haman. And lastly, for the last part of the introduction before we begin, the Chachamim tell us in the Gemara, Masechet Chulin, Davkuf Lamed Tet Amudbet, Gemara asks, where is the name Esther alluded to in the Chumash, in Chamisha Chumashay Torah? And the answer that the Gemara gives is a hint found in a pasuk in Parashat Vayelech. Pasuk says, Ve'anochi haster astir et panai bayomahu. On that day, I will haster astir. I will hide my face on that day. Because of all the evil that they have done. For turning to foreign gods. So, Megillat Esther, in essence, represents the beginning of a phase in Jewish history known as Hester Panim, the hiding, the hiding of God's face. God's face is now hidden. And every incident, every pasuk in this book can be, if you want, can be explained by, by natural causes. In fact, you will not find the name of Hashem once in this entire sefer. But looking back, at the entire uh, uh, chain of events, you can see clearly how the hand of God was behind it all. And therefore, the book of Esther, Megillat Esther, is seen by many as the paradigm uh, for understanding what Jewish history, which was to come about, the story of Hester Panim, right up to this present day. And with that, we shall begin Megillat Esther. As I mentioned in, our, in the notice to you, it would be great if you have a Chumash with you that you can follow the Pesukim and learn with me, as that's what we'll be doing. Often, if you have a Chamisha Chumshe Torah, you'll either find the Megillah at the back of the Chumash, or some Chumashim have them after the book of Shemot. So, um, please, if you have a Chumash, it'd be great that you follow along with me. And if you don't have a Chumash, that's okay. If you're in your car listening to this, that's also great, okay, because I'm going to be reading the Pesukim for you to listen. So, Without further ado, Perek Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. Again, we are learning only the first chapter today. Vayhi bimei Ahasveros. And it was, and it came to pass in the days of Ahasveros. Hu Ahasveros. He is Ahasveros. Hamolech mehodu ve'ad kush. Who reigned from hodu to kush. Sheva ve'esrim umea medina. 127 provinces. So Ahasveros. This is the Ahasveros which succeeded Chorus, Cyrus, as the ruler of the Persian Empire, like we mentioned in the introduction. That's according to Rashi. The Ibn Ezra writes that this Ahasuerus is Artaxashta. Um, I hope I pronounce this right, but Artaxerxes, mentioned in the book of Ezra, in the fourth chapter. Uh, Rashi identifies um, this Artaxashta as Koresh, the predecessor. So a little machloke between the Eben Ezra and Rashi, who exactly this is in uh, in history. Who Achasveros? He is Achasveros, meaning not the earlier Achasveros who was the father of Daryavish the Mede, but now the Achasveros who came later on. Hamolech, who ruled. Hamolech implies taking control. Achasveros, like we said in the introduction, was a wealthy commoner who usurped the throne pretty much on his own. And he had control over 127 provinces. Rabbis tell us that originally he ruled over 240 provinces. But because at Vashti's uh, urging, he halted the rebuilding of, of Yerushalayim, that uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, heaven decreed that he lose 113 of those uh, provinces. Uh, he was then left with 127, which is a remez, which is a hint to his future marriage uh, to Esther. Esther was a descendant of the matriarch Sarah Imenu, who also lived to 127 years old as brought down in Parashat Hayesara in Sefer Bereshit. Mehodu ve'adkush, literally translated as India to Ethiopia. 
This is how the Targum explains these two countries. And that's one opinion in the Talmud that is brought down. According to another opinion, Hodu and Gush were not countries that were very far away like India and Ethiopia are. But the Talmud brings another interpretation that they were adjacent countries. They were provinces that were side by side. That Achasverus ruled over his entire vast empire as easily as he would rule over two neighboring provinces. Okay, so that concludes Pasuk Aleph. Moving on to Pasuk Bet. In those days, when Achashverosh sat on his royal throne, which was in Shushan, the capital. Says the Eben Ezra, says the Rashi actually, that uh, when the wars of conquest were completed, this is uh, once he completed all the wars he needed to complete, that's when he began this feast, which we're going to talk about soon, as he sat, uh, sat on the royal throne. And the capital city of, of his empire was Shushan. It's funny, the rabbis tell us that Achashverosh moved the capital. He didn't like where it originally was. He moved it to Shushan, which is actually uh, uh, modern-day Susa in Iran, to show that his authority was not dependent on the previous government institutions. Remember, he took upon the throne by himself, but rather it was something due to his own power. He wanted to show everybody that he was fit to be king, so I'm going to move the capital. We don't need the capital in Ottawa or Washington. We're just going to pick another city and where I feel fit, and that's where we're going to move the capital to, says the Maldim. According to Ibn Ezra, Shushan Abirad does not actually mean the capital, but rather it's a fortress city. The fortress of Shushan, and Achashverosh Palace was located in the province called Elam, which is somewhere in southwest Iran. This is according to the uh, to the Ibn Ezra. Moving on to Pasuk Gimel. Bishnat Shalosh Lemolcho Asamishte. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast. Lechol Sarabavadav for all of his officials and servants. Hel Paras Umadai, the army of Persia and Media. The nobles and officials of the provinces being present. Now this feast, what was the purpose of this feast? The um, Ibn Ezra says the purpose of the feast was to celebrate his marriage to Vashti. Others want to say, again, it was uh, to celebrate the completion of all the wars that led to his ascension to the throne. Um, but the most Famous interpretation is that that's brought down from the, in the Gemara that Achashverosh had mistakenly calculated the 70 years of Jewish exile that was prophesied by Yirmiyahu Navi prior to the destruction. And those 70 years had come and gone with no sign of redemption in sight. So he assumed that the Jewish people no longer posed a threat to him or his government or sovereignty, so he celebrated with a feast. That's the most accepted interpretation of why he made a feast. Moving on to Pasuk Dalid, uh, where it starts to be, uh, uh, starts to show us exactly how much wealth he had and how uh, lavish this party was. Pasuk Dalid says, Behar Oto, it also kevod machuto, on this party where he displayed the riches of his glorious kingdom. And the honor of his splendorous majesty for Yamim Rabin for many days. How many days? Shemonim Umat Yom. 180 days. This feast that he made lasted for many days. And this is, Rashi said, uh, the whole purpose was to display all the riches that, that he had. Chashvosh was a very materialistic person. All he cared about was physical entities and things that he possessed. And this is what the purpose was. All the guests that came in just kept on showing, even get tired of it. You would think a guy would get tired of all things, showing off all his wealth. He didn't get tired. He did it for 180 days, displaying his glorious wealth. Again, to demonstrate that everything that he had, all the treasures that were in his possession, in his kingdom, says the Malbim, were now his own personal property. Pasuk, hey, ubim lo'ot. And when these days were fulfilled, uh, the king made 
um, to all the those that were present, all the nation who were present, Shushan Katan, great and small alike, Mishte Shivat Yami, another feast of seven days, Bahatzar Ginat Bitana Melech, in the courtyard of the garden of the king's palace. This palace garden, this Ginat Bitan, was a pavilion, says the uh, the Vilna Gaon, that was used for entertainment purposes. Some people that have very large homes, and they got this beautiful backyard where they would set up tents, and they would set up a stage, and they would bring musicians and stuff. That's exactly whatever you're imagining in your mind. That's exactly what was happening. This is where the party of the Shushan residents was taking place. Pasuk Vav goes into fine detail of uh, some of the ornaments that were there. Chur, karpas utchelet. There were hangings of white, uh, fine cotton, uh, turquoise, achuz bechablebutz v'argaman, held with cords of fine linen and purple wool. Algeli lechesef v'amud eshesh, upon silver rods and marble pillars. Mitod zahav achesef, couches of gold and silver. Alritzfat bahat v'ashesh v'dar v'soharet. They were these couches were on a pavement of different types of uh, of marble. So um, again, ahuz the hangings, the feasts, like we said, took place outside. So there were sheets that were hanging from the trees to provide shade for for the people. You know, in, in Persia and Iran, it can get quite hot in, in the summertime, or maybe even the wintertime too. So these sheets were being hanging so that provide some shade so people can stay there longer. Uh, some people say. It says the uh, the, uh, the Gemara that the sheets were there for people to recline on, almost like a like a hammock. They were attached to the trees, and people would sit there and relax and and enjoy. Chur, um, like we said, is white wool. Karpas is the green wool. It's the only time we actually see the word karpas in all of of Tanakh. I know we do have it on Pesach. Um, maybe uh, that's where the custom is to have some celery, which is green. But uh, some say that karpas is actually shortened from karim shel pasim, which could mean striped pillows. Another interpretation by the Megillah that karpas is refer- in reference to some pillows. Techelet is sky blue. Of course, techelet is known to be the color of the original tzitzit. Uh, we have a sky blue. Um, Argaman is purple wool. Chavle boots were held by cords. These were the tent ropes. Uh, embroidered with, with linen, according to Rashi. Gelile chesef, the silver rods. So these these iron curtains, these curtains were, were being hung on silver rods. Uh, uh, some say it was the silver hooks that fastened them to, to the rods. Um, nevertheless, a, an incredible amount of wealth that's, you know, think about your, your shower curtains that are hanging on, on rods. Imagine they were made of pure silver, right? And so now, 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 picture your your entire yard being surrounded with these these curtains, uh, gold and silver couches. Mitot zaav vachesiv. The more distinguished guests, says uh, says the Gemara, they they reclined on couches on uh, uh, couches of gold. Uh, the others silver couches, uh, less chashuv, but still silver couches. Uh, some say. All of the couches were made out of silver, but the legs were made of gold, and that's mitot zahav zahav achesef. And again, bahat dar vesocharet, different precious stones that they had. It was a very very wealthy party. Okay, moving on to pasuk zayin vehashkot bichle zahav. The drinks, everybody loves the drinks. Unlimited alcohol. This was not bring your own booze. This was you know full service. Vehashkot bichle zahav. The drinks were served in golden vessels, shonim, and the vessels were of diverse form. And the royal wine was in abundance, according with the king's, according with the king's wealth. So Rashi says no two goblets were the same. shonim, no two goblets. Everyone had different cups. Um, according to the Gemara, these cups, these goblets were taken, mm-hmm. stolen from the uh, the holy Bet HaMikdash. It was taken from the Babylonians at the time of the destruction. Now, doing such a thing should result in immediate death. So Ahasuerus should have been killed on the spot for using 
these uh, these vessels of the Bet Hamikdash. But of course, it was Hashem's plan to get Esther to the throne, so her son Daryavish will take over and rebuild the Bet Hamikdash. So yes, Achashverosh did deserve death penalty for serving wine with these utensils, but this was all part of God's plan. Pasuk Chet Chadat En Ones. The drinking was according to law. Kichen Yisad HaMelech Al Kol For the king had established for every officer, every leader of the house, La'asot Kirtzon Ish Va'ish. To do according with each man's uh, pleasure. So Kadat, the Shetiyah was in proportion. Uh, no one was sick, our rabbis tell us, by drinking more than he was accustomed to. Everyone was given, you know, you had the custom to drink two cups of wine at a, at a feast, so you drank two. You had ten, accustomed to drink ten cups, you drank uh, ten. Each man was allowed to follow the rule of his country. Okay, everything seems to be going well, and all of a sudden we're introduced to Vashti. Pasuk Tet, Gam Vashti Amalka Aseta Nashim. Queen Vashti also made a feast for women. Bet HaMalchut in the royal house, Asher LaMelech HaChashverosh, that belonged to HaChashverosh. Now Vashti, we said, was a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the Babylonian ruler who destroyed the Bet HaMikdash. And HaChashverosh married her to legitimize his claim to the throne. She made the feast in the Bet HaMalchut Asher LaMelech HaChashverosh, in the king's uh, royal house of the king. He, she made it in the king's palace rather than her own quarters. Why so? Because like Achashverosh, she intended that the feast would lead to immoral behavior, says uh, says the Gemara. This was all part of her plan. What happened? By Yom on the seventh day, Ketov Lev HaMelech Bayayin, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, Amar, he told Mehuman, he told seven chamberlains who attended Ahashverosh. This seventh day, it's a little bit unclear whether this feast was originally planned to be only for seven days or whether it was the incident with, with Vashti, which took place on day number seven which brought all of the celebration and festivities to a halt. According to uh, the Megillah, uh, the Gemara Masech Megillah, uh, this was Shabbat, it was the seventh day was Shabbat, and Vashti was taken out on Shabbat and punished, measure for measure, midah, for having forced the Jewish women to work naked on Shabbat. And this was, uh, as we're going to see, her punishment soon. Uh, what did Ahasuerus command these uh, chamberlains? To bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing the royal crown. To show off to the people and the officers and officials her beauty. For she was indeed beautiful. Rashi here famously writes, when uh, she should come wearing the royal crown, Rashi says nothing else. Mainly meaning she was naked. Only thing she was wearing was the crown. The Malbim, however, says differently. He says that this pasuk means that she was to wear her crown in Achashverosh's presence to show that the Achashverosh wanted the people to know that her position of authority, her station derived from him. Not the reverse. Don't think that just because she's the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, that's why I'm king. No, I'm showing, I'm bringing her here, wearing a crown because it's all from me. Leharot et to show her beauty. Achashverosh intended by this very bizarre demand, like we said at the introduction, to show that Vashti to him was no more than a, a captive of war who you marry because of her beauty. And his claim to throne was not because she descended from Nebuchadnezzar or any other lineage that she had. And he wanted to free himself of what people were saying about him, you know, which, uh, which posed limitations to uh, his, his monarchy. Moving on to Pasuk Yud Bet, Vatemaen Amalka Vashti. But Vashti refused to come. 
Lavo Bidvar Amelach to come to the king's command. Asher Beyada Sarisim, which was conveyed by these Sarisim, these chamberlains. Vaiksof Hamelech Meod, and the king became very enraged. Bahamato Ba'arabo, and his wrath burned in him. He's, he's fuming, very, very upset. Vashi says the Malbim understood this trick, the subterfuge of, of, of uh, Ahasuerus, and she did not wish to relinquish her status as the source of authority. No, you are our king because of me, and I'm not going to fall for this trick, says the Malbim. Um, the Al-Sheikh has an amazing chidush over here. Uh, he wants to believe that Ahasuerus and Vashti had conspired together to lure the Jews into immorality so that they would forfeit any protection from God. Uh, we, see, we see this many times in, in history with, with Bil'am. Whenever the Jewish people uh, you know, uh, sink into immorality, they lose protection from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Uh, Vashti warned Ahasuerus, uh, I'm sorry, Vashti wanted Ahasuerus to lead the men over to the women's feast for this purpose. If you want them to sink into immorality, they got to come over to the lady's side. And by insisting her to come to him, this was jeopardizing the plan. Because, yes, it might lead the Jewish man to have impure thoughts if she comes undressed just wearing a crown. But on her own, it's not going to lead the Jewish man to immoral behavior. Uh, and that's why she refused to come. The plan was to go to have the men go to her feast with uh, with all with all the ladies. But now Hasros is fuming, he's very upset, he doesn't know what to do. So he calls his advisors, the king spoke to the wise men who know the times. For such was the procedure to turn to all those who knew. Um Judgment, that uh, vadim, the law and the and the judgment. So these yodei ha'itim, those that were knowledgeable of the times. Some say they were astrologers. Um, the al sheikh uh, the Ibn Ezra says maybe they were just people who uh, were familiar with the history. They were historians that knew what took place in uh, in previous generations with other kings. Um, and and. And could and could advise him on what to do in such a situation. Um, according to Rashi, Lifne those who knew the law uh, and the judgment is an explanation of Yodei Ha'itim. They're the same people, but many many uh, want to explain that there were two systems, two legal systems in Persia, in the Persian Empire. One system were were those who was Yodei Datvadin, versed in law. And these people, they judge cases between equals according to fixed laws. Fixed statutes, this is what the law is, that's what they did. And those who were Yodei Aitim, those who were knowledgeable of the times, they would consider other factors. It would be a little bit biased. we got to consider the king's honor, uh, so on and so forth. So in this case, Ahaz Feroz was actually uh, willing to spare Vashti the death penalty because he really loved her. Uh, and although she disobeyed him, wanted to keep, keep her alive. So what did he do? He informed the Yodei Datvadin. Sorry, he, he informed the Yodei Ha'itim, the knowledgeable of the times group, that Vashti would be judged by Yodei Datvadin, those versed in law, because he admitted she's uh, she's a king's daughter. She's a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, she deserved to be judged as... His equal. So if you're going to give, uh, if you're going to be biased to me and give preference to me and treat me differently because I'm a king, then you got to do the same to her, trying to keep her alive. Some want to say the opposite. On the contrary, he told the Yodei Ha'itim, those knowledgeable of the times to judge her, because they would have more leeway to find her uh, clemency, to be more merciful on her, knowing that they know the history and what maybe something like this taken, taken, took place in the past. And maybe they can find her innocent in uh, in some way. Pasuk Yudal ve'akarov elav. Those that were close to him. Karshena, Shetar, Admata, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, Memuchan. 
Shivat Sare Parasumadai, these were seven officers of Persian media. Ro'epenea Melech, who had access to the king Hayoshevim Rishonah Bamalchut. And they sat first in the kingdom. Hakarov Elav, they, they, they were close to him. They knew him well enough to understand from his hints and, and his signs that he wanted to spare her life. Now, who is this Memuchan, the one who's going to speak up shortly? Uh, according to the Targum, many say that this is Haman. Memuchan is Haman. And why is he called Memuchan? Because Memuchan means he's preordained. Haman was preordained for what? To be hung, to be killed on the gallows, as brought down in Masechet Megillah. Others want to say that Memuchan is actually Daniel. Daniel was preordained to bring Vashti's death. So machloket on who this Memuchan was. Speaking of, uh, of Memuchan, we'll see him in, a, in a, another couple of psukim. Pasuk Tedvav says, Kedat Malaso, these seven uh, um, these seven advisors were there to uh, to tell Achashverosh what to do. Kedat by the law, what should be done with Vashti, with the king of uh, with the queen Vashti. for not having obeyed the request of Achashverosh conveyed by the Sarisim. So. Um, this is uh, what, what, what's happening over here. And uh, let's see what, what Memuchan says. Pasuk Tedzayim. So Memuchan jumps up. In front of the king and the officers. Not only against the, uh, the king has Vashti done wrong. But against all the officials and all the people. Who are in the provinces of Achashverosh? So first of all, uh, Memuchan was listed last of all the seven. Why is he jumping up first to talk? You know, being number seven, you're probably least important. So although he was listed among the last of the ministers, he spoke first. And uh, some want to say we we see from here how vulgar of a man Haman uh, was. Pushing his way to the to the forefront, um, and what about those that say that this was Daniel? So those that want to explain that this was Daniel will say that it was customary for the youngest uh, counselor or advisor to make his recommendation first. And Memuchan said, "Lo ala melech levado." It's not only the king realizing that Achashverosh wanted to spare Vashti. Memuchan said, "Listen, even if you're willing to waive." Your own honor. But you can't waive the honor of husbands everywhere. It just doesn't work like that. What about the rest of the nation, the rest of the men? As he's going to explain in Pasuk Yuzayin. Ki devara malka. Pasuk Yuzayin says, The queen's deed will go forth. Al kol to all the women. Le'avzot ba'lehen be'enehen. Making their husbands contemptible in their eyes. Be'omram ha'melech ha'chashveros. When they will say, that the king Achashverosh Amar said, That Achashverosh said to bring Vashti before him, and she did not uh, come. In other words, king, you're going to be a laughingstock. People are going to be poking fun at you at all times. Everyone is going to hear what Vashti did to you, and how they disparaged, and how she disparaged you. You know what they're going to say? brought down the, the, the Nachal Eskol, that not only can't he control his wife, he can't control his kingdom. And that means you're going to lose everybody. All your followers will be gone. We live in an age of followers. Everybody's followers. How many followers do you have? Imagine losing all your followers. Wow, instant depression nowadays on social media if you lose all your followers. This is what's going to happen. You're going to lose all your followers because people are going to think that you don't have a handle on your country if you can't even control your wife. Pasuk Yudchet, Ve'ayom Azeh, and this day, Tomar Nasarot Parasumadai, the princesses of Persia and Media, will say, Asher Shamu'a Devar Malka, after hearing what the queen did, Lekol Sarei HaMelech, Uchtai Bizayon Vakatsef, there will be much contempt and rage. 
So, ve'ayom hazeh. So, Memuchan was saying, yes, although it will take some time for the word to reach the common women outside of this city, but the noble women that were present at the mishteh of the feast are going to begin treating their husbands with contempt that very day. Pasuk Yutet. So what did he advise? Imala melech tov. If it uh, if it pleases the king, let a royal edict go out from him. And let it be written into the laws of Persia and Media, and it will not be revoked. That Bashti never again appear in front of Achashverosh. And let the king confer her royal estate upon someone who is better than she. Most commentaries understand that the directive just prohibited Vashti from entering Ahasuerus' presence in the future. And Haman was hoping that this would at least set a precedent allowing husbands to send away wives who were unruly, so that uh, um, so that the Vilna Gaon said that Haman himself had a wife that was bullying him, and now this gives him the opportunity to kick out his wife for treating him with contempt. According to Rashi, though, and this is one that many of us are familiar with, this was Vashi's death penalty. But it seems that only Rashi uh, is the one that holds that she died. According to the simple shot of the of the text, it was just we're kicking her out of the house and you cannot come back. And we're going to just find another queen to take your place. And this is going to be written into the laws that should be the fate of any woman, woman who treats her husband disrespectfully. And if she was to come into the king's presence despite the decree, okay, then she would be executed. That's how the Targum and the Vilna Gaon says. You can no longer come back and if you do, then you will be killed. But like we said, according um, to Rashi, this is the explanation of why she was executed. Because she didn't come to the feast. It all depends on how you read uh, read the Pasuk. And we're going to find a woman, Lirota Hatova Mimena. Memuchan here is recommending finding another woman of high birth, better than she, someone more beautiful than Vashti, or even better in her behavior, uh, seeing what has happened to uh, to Vashti? Pasuk Kaf, we got a few few more pesukim left. And Ishma Pitkama Melech Asher Yaseh Bechol Machuto. Then the king's decree, which he will proclaim, shall be heard throughout the kingdom. Kirabahi, for it is grand. And now all the wives will show respect to their husbands. Lemigadol veAdkatan, great and small. Alike, Hilabahi, vast though it is, says Ibn Ezra. Um, you know, this is so significant what, 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 is, what is taking place here. You want people to understand it and to, to internalize this new edict. This proposal was very favorable in the eyes of the king and his officials, and the king did according to the word of Memuchan. These words had a soothing, calming effect on Ahasuerus. Uh, it's almost like everything went, o- and went away. Remember that rage? Remember that anger? The, the, the fuming uh, experience that he was going through when Vashti disobeyed him. And all of a sudden, he's calm. This is the first time we see this type of social conduct. Achashverosh was very two-faced. Achashverosh, many call him, was the, the epitome of schizophrenia. That's what he was. He would flip in an instant, go crazy, and then just one thing, just totally, totally calm down. And this is the first time that uh, that we see it. Oh, everything is good, beautiful, let's make the law. Vaishlach sefarim, last pasuk. Vaishlach Sefarim el kol medinot hamelech, and therefore he sent letters into all the king's provinces el medina umdina kichtava to each province in its own language and script vel am ba am kilshono and to each people in its own language liot kol ish sorer bebeto to the effect that every man shall rule in his own home 
מדבר כלשון עמום. And speak the language of his own people. Each person in his own language. The Malvim explains that Ahasuerus's objective in addressing uh, each province in its own language was to show that it was no longer the Persian Empire which ruled, but I ruled. It was Ahasuerus himself which ruled, and everyone was paying homage to him, including the uh, including the Persians. Call Isorer. Bebeto, every man should be the master of his house. And again, the Malbim here writes that it was this decree that created the situation obtaining to this day that in some parts of the world, women are considered virtual slaves of their husband. It still exists today. What happened thousands of years ago, it was this, says the Malbim, this edict that was sent out to all the countries that Every man should be the master of his house and treat ladies like rubbish and garbage, like slaves. This is where it comes uh, comes from. Speak the language of his own people. If a husband and wife came from different countries, now all of a sudden the wife was obligated to learn the language of her husband and not the the reverse. Um, and again, Tosafot and Masechet Megillah, also cites the opinion that Memuchan is Daniel, and that maybe that Daniel made this proposal in in hope of compelling his own wife to learn to speak his uh, his language. Um, I want to end with the following chidush um, about on this pasuk that he sent letters to all the king's provinces to the effect that every man should be the master of his home and speak the language of uh, and the lady speak the language of his own people. Um, we started the the Megillah with this introduction that every really every pasuk in the Megillah amplifies the magnitude of the miracles that took place and although it seems that things are happening by nature, that's not what's happening, um, but you read this pasuk and you must ask yourself okay, what relevance does this have in the general story? Like what, what this pasuk what relevance could it possibly have to the miracles of, of Purim? So I read a beautiful uh, chidush in a, in a sefer called Ginzea Melech HaMegilat Esther, the king's treasures. And he writes the following. During the Babylonian exile, many Jews sinned by intermarriage. We spoke about this at the, in the introduction. They were marrying Gentile women. And Rabbi Yonatan Eibshitz, Zecher Tzadik Libracha, writes that these women, these Gentile women converted, but their motivation was only to marry their Jewish partners. It was not to accept the Torah and the mitzvot. And the law is that all Gentiles who convert for the sake of ulterior motives, their conversion is not legitimate and they're not legally Jewish. Um, it stands to reason that these Babylonian women spoke their mother tongue with the children. They had no interest in learning uh, the Hebrew language or Lashon HaKodesh, and they taught their children, uh, these Jewish children, their pagan beliefs. But now comes Haman, and with this decree, dramatically changed the lifestyle of all of these intermarried couples. Uh, since the law now stated that every man should rule in his own home and speak the language of his own people, now these women had no choice but to speak to their children in Lashon HaKodesh, in the, the mother tongue of the Israelites and uh, bring them up according to the laws of the, of the Torah, says uh, the Sefer Gimzah Melech. This explains how nobody surmised that Esther was Jewish, even though it was well known that she grew up in the house of Mordechai, and they were married for years. Intermarriage became so common that the fact that Esther was married to Mordechai, it didn't indicate to the public that she was Jewish. So we see that the sinners who married Gentile women unwittingly set the scene for the miracle of Purim. For if it were not for their sin, Esther's nationality would have been easily discovered and she would have never been appointed uh, appointed queen. Not only that, an additional chidush. Haman, through this, was provided with an unbelievable positive proof that Esther was not Jewish. How so? The Gemara relates that Haman rejoiced when 
he made the lot, which we're going to learn about soon uh, in the next uh, in the next few weeks. Where, um, uh, he made the lot fell, fall in the month of Adar. The Gemara tells us in Masechet, uh, Masechet Megillah. Why did he rejoice when it fell in Adar? He rejoiced because he knew that Moshe Rabbeinu died in the month of Adar, and he suspected that Mordechai, a Yehudi, was a spiritual descendant of Moshe. In fact, according to the according to the Arizal, Mordechai, yes, indeed, possessed some fragments of of, uh, of Moshe Rabbeinu's soul. Uh, the, the, the Midrash tells us in Parashat Noah, actually, Moshe was destined to be the Redeemer, and Mordechai was destined for redemption. All Redeemers uh, contain a fragment of the soul of Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the first and ultimate Redeemer, right, in the time of Yetziat Mitzrayim. He was the paradigm of all Redeemers. And Mordechai was the man who was destined to bring about the Jewish people's redemption. So when the lot fell on Adar, Haman's like, I got this. So what he surmised that the, the casting of the lot indicated that Mordechai would also die on that month. At the same time, the lot also eliminated any suspicions he had about Esther's nationality because they made him draw an absolute parallel between Moshe and Mordechai. Mor- Mo- Moshe and Mordechai must be equal because they're both redeemers. Who did Moshe marry? Moshe married a Gentile. Tzipporah was the daughter of Kohen Midian, the daughter of Yitro. So Mordechai must have also married a Gentile. Esther, not Jewish. He was a convert, not Jewish. And now he was relieved and he concluded that Esther was not of Jewish origin. So yes, this pasuk that concludes the first parak indeed has tremendous relevance to the overall uh, Purim uh, miracle. I want to thank everybody who joined us tonight for the first part of this series. I invite you to come back next Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. to listen live. And of course, tune into our podcast if you missed it, or our website, findingholiness.com, to hear this class, future classes, and all previous classes. And remember that holiness matters. Wishing everybody a wonderful night. Be well.